Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, episode number 97, Rebecca Wexler, Privacy as Privilege. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Rebecca Wexler. Rebecca is Assistant Professor of Law at the University of California Berkeley School of Law, where she is also Faculty Co-Director of the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology. Rebecca teaches evidence and a course on secrecy, and her research lies at the intersection of criminal procedure, evidence, and data privacy. Our podcast today features Rebecca's new article, Privacy as Privilege, the Stored Communications Act and Internet Evidence. It was presented in August at the Evidence Summer Workshop and received the 2020 Privacy Law Scholars Conference Reidenberg Kerr Award for the best paper submitted by a pre-tenure scholar. It is forthcoming in the Harvard Law Review. In it, Rebecca discusses the Stored Communications Act, or SCA, which protects the digital information stored by various technology companies. As Rebecca observes, all of the circuit courts that have examined the issue so far have held that the SCA bars criminal defendants from subpoenaing technology companies for data stored on their servers. Rebecca argues that these holdings, in effect, create a privilege, which is wrong as a matter of statutory interpretation and as a matter of policy. My conversation with Rebecca discusses these arguments, as well as an arguably troubling trend in recent times away from the old maxim that the law is entitled to every person's evidence. Rebecca, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Ed, thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to this. Your article focuses on the Stored Communications Act, or SCA. Can you just give us a little background on the SCA and what it does? Sure. So the SCA is the primary data privacy law for the internet, and it was enacted in 1986 out of a series of different concerns, but Congress in part was trying to fill in statutory privacy protections where they were worried that the Fourth Amendment might not be protecting information possessed by electronic communication service providers or remote computing service providers. And so these were the kinds of platforms of the day that people were using to transmit emails effectively. And this statute was meant to go in and provide some sort of limitations on when the government could get access to the information possessed by those companies and what the companies could do with it. So I would imagine in the 80s, we're talking America Online and some of these older companies. What are the companies that are affected by the SCA today? Well, that is actually a fascinating question. It's a little bit undetermined, but I'll say that the Stored Communications Act applied to most of your internet service provider platforms. So Facebook, Twitter, Google, GitHub, 
all these companies that we now rely on so heavily were governed or and potentially are most likely governed by the Stored Communications Act. The only reason there's a small asterisk on that is because this issue that we're going to talk about today around criminal defense subpoenas, and I know we haven't introduced it yet, but certain challenges to the Stored Communications Act have been bubbling up in the courts around the country for a decade. And last month, the California State Supreme Court issued an opinion that actually calls into question how broadly the Stored Communications Act might apply to different companies. They considered seriously what they're calling a business model theory that was first introduced last January by the San Diego District Attorney in a filing in that case, which would actually write out any company that relies on data or mines data for business purposes other than to just transmit the information to the recipient of the communication. So that would take out companies like Facebook and Google that use the information to create advertising or anything like that. Exactly right. And this really is a novel interpretation and Three Supreme Court justices from the California State Supreme Court in a case called Touchstone, they didn't decide on this issue, but they actually considered it seriously and said, hey, this is something that future litigators should address. So I think it's a bit of an open question right now, and we're going to start to see litigation about how broadly the SCI applies. You already alluded to this. Your paper is focused on criminal defense subpoenas, but just so that we have a good background on this. Does the SCA also apply to the civil context? And does it apply to prosecutors? Prosecutors, from my reading, seem to have more of a subpoena power, but it seems that the SCA also impedes them in some ways. Yes, absolutely. The SCA, in its traditional consensus interpretation, setting aside this new business model theory, applies broadly. And where it applies, it governs under current doctrine, it applies to what technology companies can do in civil as well as criminal cases. And then the statute has a separate provision that regulates law enforcement's access to the contents of communications in possession of the companies. And that's actually an important distinction. I just want to flag the issue that I'm interested in is about the Stored Communication Act's regulations of the contents of electronic communications, but the statute also has different provisions for non-content information like metadata. And so the SEA prevents criminal defendants from getting at these stored communications from technology companies, however defined, which impedes their ability to put on a defense, presumably. Yes, that's absolutely right in current interpretation. And of course, I have a different view of the statutory text. So I'm trying to walk this line of saying, here's what the current law is. Here's the uniform consensus among the courts. But I actually think it's wrong. And one key point, too, about what's going on with this issue, the technology companies and the court's current interpretation of this statute blocks criminal defense subpoenas that are otherwise valid. So all the safeguards, all the thresholds that are built into that subpoena power, which is already pretty narrow subpoena power that criminal defendants have access to, are going to apply here. The subpoenas we're talking about 
are subpoenas for information that a judge has decided is relevant and material in the case. In some sense, it seems to me that there's a model that you could draw where the Stored Communications Act makes sense. I think this model is that these online providers are merely conduits and the law should effectively view them as invisible. Under the SCA, as I understand, criminal defendants can still access the information via subpoenas on the owners of the files, but not the providers that provide the platforms for those files. Now, on the other hand, there seems to be this asymmetry because the SCA allows the prosecution to have subpoena power over technology companies in certain cases. So if we were really serious about the conduit model, you wouldn't have that particular escape valve. Beyond the obvious, which is that, in a sense, the government often gets what it wants, is there any reason for that asymmetry? Or maybe I should put it differently. Why would the technology companies or their lobby agree to have this asymmetry at all? Wouldn't they be fighting for a complete bar on this? Fascinating question. And so let me just take it in parts because there's so much there. I love this conduit idea. And I think, Ed, you're absolutely right that if we were going to take the conduit idea seriously and say, hey, you know, the companies just shouldn't be a source for this information. They're just like, a street or a delivery service or FedEx, and we're not going to allow compulsory process to interfere with their business interest, or we're just not going to let it apply in that context. We would expect, I would expect to see consistency in the statute on that point. So I wouldn't expect to see cherry picking. We're going to allow this kind of process, but not that kind of process. We're going to allow it for law enforcement, but not criminal defendants. And similarly, I wouldn't expect there to be a whole slew of other exceptions that allow the company to disclose this information and use this information in other contexts. So even if you disagree with the theory that the California Supreme Court's now considering where these companies that are involved in data mining as a key part of their business model should be entirely written out of this statute. It's difficult for me to conceive of a company that can use the contents for so many different purposes and can disclose them for so many different purposes as just this neutral conduit that should be entirely immunized from one particular kind of compulsory process. On your point about asymmetries, From a realist perspective, I think what's going on here is that lawmakers are trying to protect privacy. These are well-intentioned lawmakers who are trying to encourage new uses of new technologies where people might be worried about using them if they think their information is going to get published to the newspaper if they hand it over to the company. And so they want to protect consumer privacy. And what happens is that law enforcement comes along in the legislative process with lobbying power and asks for an exception. And they say, hey, okay, give us an exception so that we can continue to access this information. And few, if anyone, comes to lawmakers and says, hey, well, criminal defendants should also be able to access that information. We need an exception as well. And the key thing to know here is that, look, we have an adversarial criminal justice system. 
And what that means is we rely on both parties to investigate the strongest evidence to support their case. So neither the Constitution nor any statute nor even the ethical obligations of prosecutors oblige them to affirmatively seek out evidence of innocence. That is not one of their duties. The only party in the criminal justice system that has an affirmative duty to actively investigate evidence of innocence is criminal defense counsel. And that's who's getting obstructed by this interpretation of the statute. So you say, is there any explanation for why we got here? And I think the explanation is law enforcement has a stronger lobbying power than the criminal defense bar. And a lot of people are unaware that the only entity who is required to investigate evidence of innocence is defense counsel. By the way, this type of asymmetry is a pattern in a lot of privacy statutes. And so I've been worried about it being reenacted in some of the new proposed federal data privacy legislation and state privacy legislation like the CCPA in California, the California Consumer Privacy Act. And so I've been speaking with legislative staffers who are involved in the new privacy bill movement. And they're telling me, well, we want to get consumer privacy protection passed. That's our goal. And if we don't give law enforcement an exception, they will obstruct us. They'll hold it up. They'll prevent us from enacting consumer privacy laws. So let's just give them the exception over here, get our consumer privacy law out the door, and then we'll enact another bill, another statute to regulate when law enforcement can engage in investigative behavior. And maybe that other bill ends up happening and maybe it doesn't. So that's one explanation for why we got this asymmetry. The last point to say on this is Mark Zwillinger and Christian Janetsky identified this problem with the Store Communications Act many years ago that they had encountered in their practice in DOJ. And they went through the legislative history of this statute in depth, and they identified that there's nothing in the legislative history that indicates that Congress even considered criminal defense investigations when it was writing the SCA. There's no indication that Congress intended to block criminal defense subpoenas. There's no indication they even knew what they were doing. One interesting aspect of your article is whenever we talk about technology, we often think that this is something for which there is no historical precedent. And I found it really interesting in your article that you showed that, in fact, this problem does have historical precedent with the telegraph. So could you perhaps tell us a little bit more about that and how it ties in to what you were just talking about? The internet and the telegraph are in many ways similar technologies, and they raise similar policy concerns around privacy of communications. In both situations, the person who wants to communicate, the sender of a communication, has to give the contents of their communication to an intermediary company, which then passes it on to the intended recipient. And in both situations, the service provider company routinely maintained copies of the contents of those communications. So today we hear a lot about data-driven business strategies and privacy 
Julie Cohen's work is exceptional on this. And companies are retaining contents of communications in order to mine them for advertising and other follow-on services. In the telegraph context, companies also maintain the contents, not for data mining purposes so much, but to protect themselves from liability for mistransmission. And so you had the same worry, both of privacy harms where a company might improperly reveal the contents of your communication to someone other than the intended recipient, and of chilling effects where people might be so worried about that worst case scenario that they choose not to use the technology at all. And in both circumstances, lawmakers tried to intervene to help protect against these concerns by enacting broad privacy statutes. So the telegraph statutes look a lot like the Stored Communications Act in that they're structured with a blanket non-disclosure provision that says, hey, company, you're not allowed to reveal the contents of these communications, except in certain enumerated circumstances. Not all of the telegraph statutes have this exact structure, but many, many of them did have this exact structure of a broad non-disclosure provision followed by enumerated exceptions that permit disclosure in limited circumstances. And that is the structure of the Stored Communications Act non-disclosure provision as well. It has a blanket non-disclosure provision that restricts when technology companies can reveal the contents of communications, and then it enumerates a series of exceptions for when they can permissibly disclose. And what's fascinating about comparing these telegraph statutes against the Stored Communications Act is that in both circumstances, the confidentiality law butted up against litigants' truth-seeking interests and the interests of the judiciary in accurately and fairly resolving matters before them. In both cases, litigants sought to subpoena the contents of communications directly from the service provider, and the service providers argued in both cases that the statute should categorically immunize them from these otherwise valid subpoenas. So what's fascinating is that the outcome in both cases is completely the opposite. In the telegraph statute cases, courts unanimously held that despite the fact that these statutes didn't expressly permit disclosure pursuant to a so-ordered subpoena, nonetheless, the statutes should yield to compulsory process of the courts, and they construed the statute explicitly in the framework of evidentiary privilege law, saying this statute does not create a privilege, therefore it yields to subpoenas. And in the SCA 21st century context, courts have done exactly the opposite. So for over a decade, every court to have considered this issue in the criminal justice space has ruled in favor of the technology companies and said that the Stored Communications Act blocks otherwise valid criminal defense subpoenas. So I think it's clear to say that your position is that the SCA should be interpreted more along the lines of the telegraph statutes. I guess the first question here is why? And I think the other question is, why have the courts interpreted the SCA in the way that they have? 
So the why question, why should the SCA be interpreted like the telegraph statutes, has two possible answers, and I'm, I'll give you both. One's doctrinal, and the other is policy. So the doctrinal argument is that the Supreme Court has established a binding set of rules that are mandatory on courts that determine when courts must and when they must not construe federal statutes to create evidentiary privileges. This is a often overlooked area of law, even in the context of evidence law. Before I started looking at this project, I didn't realize that there was a whole doctrine governing statutory privileges. The federal rules of evidence in general delegate the development of privilege law to the common law, to the federal courts to develop in light of experience and logic as they see fit. And that's how the canonical privileges that we usually think of when we think of privilege law, like attorney-client or spousal privilege, that's how those are governed today. But the federal rules also say that the common law doesn't control if a federal statute says otherwise. And so there are some federal statutes that say otherwise. They either create privileges or they could potentially bar the courts from creating a privilege. In this case, I don't think that the SCA bars the courts from creating a privilege if they wanted to turn around tomorrow and use their common law authority to create one for the internet. But they can't rely on the text of the SCA to create a privilege because the controlling Supreme Court rule is that courts must construe federal statutes narrowly to not undermine the truth-seeking process of the courts by excluding evidence from judicial proceedings unless there's no alternate reading of the statutory text. And the telegraph cases show us, I argue definitively, that there is a reasonable alternate reading of this statutory text. The alternate reading is that it yields to otherwise valid compulsory legal process. So in my reading of the binding Supreme Court case law, federal courts and state courts are required not to read the text of the SCA to create a privilege that would bar criminal defense subpoenas. The other answer to your why question is why should courts adopt this statutory interpretation? Well, because I think it is good policy. Adopting the interpretation of the act that I'm advancing would improve truth-seeking and accuracy in criminal cases with minimal harm to privacy. So a lot of people that I talk to about this issue are worried about the privacy consequences of my proposed statutory interpretation. But I would say they shouldn't be because the harm to privacy is not going to be significant here. You have to understand that right now, the reading of this statute entitles people to entirely withhold relevant exculpatory evidence from criminal cases, even when they have no legitimate privacy interest at all. So consider a case which I've seen fact patterns like this 
friends of mine have litigated cases like this. Consider a case where a criminal defendant is caught on surveillance camera shooting at an SUV. And the defendant wants to say, I shot in self-defense because the individual in that SUV attempted to murder me six months previously. The police investigated that attempted murder, but didn't arrest the perpetrator. And that person then sent this defendant harassing and threatening messages for six months, keeping him in constant fear of his life. He doesn't have possession of those messages anymore. And he's trying to subpoena them from Instagram. Now, Instagram relied on the SCA in this case to deny that subpoena. In that case, I argued that the individual who's sending those threatening and harassing messages does not have a legitimate privacy interest in withholding them from the courts. But Instagram's response in that case was, hey, this statute lets you subpoena the sender of the communication. They're the ones you should get this evidence from. So go subpoena the man that's trying to kill your client. In that kind of a circumstance, reading the SCA the way I'm proposing would give us more relevant evidence without harming privacy. So I think I gave you too many questions earlier. The follow-up question to this is, why have the courts interpreted the SCA in this way? Why haven't they taken on the old adage that the law is entitled to every person's evidence and interpreted privileges narrowly? So there's also two ways to look at what's going on with courts' current interpretations. The one that I believe is that no one has briefed for the courts the fact that they are bound by the Supreme Court doctrine on statutory privileges. Some defense attorneys in these cases have analogized the SCA to a privilege and then tried to rely on their client's constitutional rights to present a defense in order to defeat or overcome the statute. So they say, hey, even if this statute creates a block on our subpoena power, my client's constitutional rights should defeat that just like my client's constitutional rights can sometimes defeat other evidentiary privileges. But no one has briefed for the courts that they're actually barred by Supreme Court doctrine from construing a statute to create a privilege in the first place. And under that theory, defendants don't need to rely on their constitutional rights to defeat the statutory bar because there is no statutory bar. So their regular old relevance-based subpoena powers should be good enough. So my first answer is no one's briefed this to the courts. And I'm hoping they'll change their mind when they start getting this in argument before them. But the second answer is that technology companies have aggressively litigated an alternate statutory reading of the text, which is one that relies on the canon of construction called expressio unius. And that's the theory that in this statute, Congress wrote a series of express exceptions for permissible disclosures and they didn't write an exception for criminal defense subpoenas. And so the logic goes, Congress knows how to write exceptions when it wants to, and it didn't write one here. So therefore, it must have intended to omit an exception here and intended to bar criminal defense subpoenas. This argument has gained a lot of traction in the courts, in part because the technology companies are banding together here. 
They're filing amicus briefs in each other's cases. They've got centralized litigants who are repeat players, who are litigating the same issue over and over again, wherever around the country it appears. Meanwhile, they're litigating against often public defenders who are representing indigent public defense clients who are reinventing the wheel. It's the first time they've seen the issue and they're litigating it alongside a full felony docket that gives them limited time to focus attention on this. And so there's not equal firepower on both arms for the different statutory interpretations you could imagine. The expressio unius logic can be flipped on its head because just like Congress knows how to write express exceptions when it wants to, so too Congress knows how to write express evidentiary privileges when it wants to. And in lots of statutes, Congress writes express language saying, this information shall not be subject to discovery or subpoena. This information shall be immune from legal process. So that same reasoning that we can apply in the expressio unius context, we can also apply to the statutory interpretation that I'm proposing, which is Congress could have written an express privilege. They didn't here. So they did not intend this statute to block otherwise valid legal process. Final question for you. What's next for this project? Any future directions that you are taking this work or perhaps would like others to take? Thank you for asking that. My hope is that this project will facilitate and serve and just provide support for criminal defense attorneys who want to litigate subpoenas to technology companies. My research assistant, Chelsea Hanlock, who is a rock star recent Berkeley JD graduate, and I co-authored a template motion based on the arguments I advanced in this article. And that motion's now being distributed to defense counsel around the country to help them raise this statutory interpretation in the courts. So my long-term hope, my grandest hope for the project is that courts will start seeing this argument. At least some of them will find it persuasive. That may start to create a circuit split in what's currently a uniform judicial interpretation. And then the circuit split can help us aid criminal defendants in the jurisdictions that are going to permit their subpoenas and potentially get this case up to the Supreme Court to clarify that courts should not read the Stored Communications Act to bar valid legal process. Well, Rebecca, thanks for taking the time to introduce us to the various evidentiary problems associated with the SCA, as well as its relationship to the law of privileges. Great having you on the show. Ed, this was so much fun. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Rebecca's article raises a whole host of interesting conceptual issues. Are technology platforms best viewed as conduits and therefore invisible to the judicial process? Why have the Stored Communications Act and other modern privacy statutes been written in such strikingly asymmetric ways? And why have courts seemingly forgotten the traditional disfavorable treatment accorded to privileges? It's a rich and largely unexplored area of evidence law and one that crosses over into privacy, technology, and criminal procedure. One aspect of the SCA that 
I found quite striking was that, once again, we have yet another statute impeding compulsory process. Personally, I subscribe rather strongly to the traditional adage that the law is entitled to every person's evidence. I view with dismay what seems to be, in modern times, a rather casual willingness to expand privileges or privilege-like bars on admissibility. After all, if we expect courts to get it right, courts need access to evidence and testimony. And it's all too easy for accuracy to die a death by a thousand cuts in the face of what are admittedly often worthy policy interests that encourage evidentiary protection and confidentiality. While I probably would not have ultimately come out the way that Justice Scalia did on the psychotherapist-patient privilege, I'm frequently reminded by the language in his dissent in Jaffe v. Redmond. Scalia lamented the numerous special interest amicus briefs that argued in favor of extending privilege in Jaffe. As Scalia said, quote, there is no self-interested organization out there devoted to pursuit of the truth in the federal courts, unquote. Defense of the truth therefore falls to courts, or perhaps to academics, and thus we have an important responsibility. To my mind, Rebecca's work is a refreshing step in the right direction. Privacy and confidentiality are undoubtedly important values, but they come at a price. And every now and again, it's important for scholars like Rebecca to remind us about that. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program and the University of Arkansas School of Law. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Francesca Rutherford, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. Thanks also to the Faculty of Law at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, who hosted me during the recording of this episode. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join us again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.